The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and today I'm joined by Katie Balls, James Hill and Financial Times' Stephen Bush who is also a Coffee House Shots regular. And as we near the end of the year, we thought it would be a good idea to look back over 2023 and do a little bit of a stock take. Now, Katie, I wondered if I can start with you. It's been quite a dramatic year. Do you think Rishi Sunak has made much of a difference this year? If you look at this time last year, for example, he had just become Prime Minister. He was stabilising a Conservative Party. He was tackling small boats. He was raising taxes. A lot of that still seems to be the same now. I think if you just go on the polling numbers, very little. <laughs> Ultimately, he was about 20 points behind at the beginning of the year. He's about 20 points behind at the end of the year. There's been a slight fluctuation here and there. Springtime was a high for Rishi Sunak with the Windsor framework. But then when spring became the local elections, it started to go quite downhill. I suppose probably the quickest take, and one that would make this podcast shorter than it's meant to be, was to say there's not really been any progress. I think if we're being fairer, I would say there has been progress. Now, I think people say this is not a particularly high bar, but taking aside last week and the five families Rwanda situation, it has been the case that this year the Tory party has looked comparatively more sane and well-functioning than it has for about a year and a half before that. Mm. And you had a situation where Rishi Sunak came in after, obviously, the fallout from Liz Truss, the market fallout, but also a Tory party that had effectively, I think this began under Boris Johnson, and I don't think Rishi Sunak and his supporters are blameless in this, but had become very feudal, lots of factional fighting, and they made an active choice at the end of last year almost not to step into the abyss. So, you know, unite or die, what are you going to do? They chose to vaguely unite. You've had some scraps along the way. I think last week it came back to that point. I think whenever you hear Rishi Sunak saying to MPs, unite or die, you know it's not going great. Uh, He's having to bring these things. But they did walk back from the brink slightly. So I think in terms of what Rishi Sunak has achieved this year, I think you can say the economy is in a better place than where the year began. Not all of that is to do with him, but I think you can say it is in a better place. You can say, if you look at the autumn statement, if Fraser on this podcast was saying, well, tax burden is still going up, but at least I think the Tory party has indicated. If you take stealth taxes in, clearly that means that lots of people feel less well off than they would have otherwise, even with the national insurance. But there's still a statement of intent that perhaps they can work on next year. And then I think perhaps one of the biggest things Rishi Sunak has done is, for example, improving relations on the world stage. So you have the Windsor framework, which I think was actually a very significant moment for, you know, barnacles off the boat type thing in terms of resetting the relationship. And you add to that even small things such as the David Cameron appointment, which I'm sure we'll get into. There's lots of political cons to that. But I think on a world stage point, it has, uh, you know, been another sign, I think, to some world leaders that, you know, we are a country they want to engage with. 
Mm. And Stephen, there's a lot to get through, but let's just sticking on the Tory party for one second. You know, as Katie says, most of the year it did seem relatively calm, but now we're getting into, well, in the last month or so since the Rwanda ruling, it has been all guns blazing again. Do you think going into next year, Rishi Sunak has now managed to calm those waters again with winning the vote last week, or is this just a temporary ceasefire? The thing we saw last week, right, is that the strange dynamic of the last year is that Rishi Sunak has successfully built and actually bound together this quite odd coalition of the party's left, its establishment and its deficit hawks. And taken together, those factions mean that he is going to lead them into the next election unless he chooses not to do so. The problem, though, is that, as we saw last week, right? yeah, they were never going to lose on second reading, but the fact that we had another week in which I would say is not obvious what any of the people making trouble for Rishi Sunak thought thought was going to advantage them in their own constituencies, let alone anything else. I think, essentially, what we'll see over the next year will be this dynamic in which he has stabilised his party, he's united it from the perspective of he is going to remain its leader, but broadly speaking, there's a group of people in the Conservative Party who are either preparing for opposition or have grown slightly too fond of the sound of their own voices or have forgotten. And yeah, actually, we shouldn't forget the slightly strange thing about the Parliamentary Party is that there has never really been a a group of MPs with as few people who have experience of opposition in it. Most Conservative MPs were elected after 2010. Mm. I suspect the Rwanda bill will make it onto the statute book in some shape or form. But I think there will continue to be these weeks in which Everyone in Downing Street, everyone in Labour HQ, all of us outside of those two camps look at the behaviour of some Conservative MPs and go, what are you hoping to accomplish (laughs) here? And I don't think that's changed. Mm. And James, one of the ways we could evaluate this year is Mm. through Rishi Sunak's own self-set five pledges, which he put forward in January. How well do you think he's done on those things? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Out of 10? (laughs) I think it's been a really horrible year in the sense that 2022 is the year of chaos. 2024 is going to be the year of elections. 2023 was one of those kind of lull years in between. The economy was not avoiding recession, but constantly teetering on the brink of it. I think that they obviously will be glad they got the inflation halved down to about 4% now it is. Obviously not what's as low as the 2% target, but it was about small progress in different areas. The fact that the public sector strikes didn't tip over as they could have done, uh, the fact that the boats are down by one third or so. But I think perhaps you can say, you can get the best sign of how the five pledges went by the fact that Rishinak is now talking about different five pledges, perhaps. <laughs> he did make some progress, but I think that, so first of all, it wasn't enough progress to kind of turn the polls exactly to where they wanted to be. You know, the aim was at the beginning of the year to get the Labour's poll lead down to about 10 points. It's nowhere near that. It's more sort of closer to the 20-point end of the spectrum. And the second point is, I think, we saw flashes of this at times of the year, I think a certain frustration within government at the failure to get the kind of political credit for any wins or, or really much to kind of shift the narrative. And you saw, particularly around that September, October time, when we'd had the net zero speech, where we'd had the party conference speech, trying on different guises, etc. They, they failed to really move the polls much. So I think that 
while people in you know Rishi Sunak supporters will say point to certain achievements, and I agree completely with Katie that the Windsor framework, you know, mm. appears to have sort of put the Brexit issue to bend in a way that his predecessors never could. Some important work has been done on things like the union. I think that's the big story of this year. Really, has been about Scottish element to all of this and the work that I think that you can argue the the union is now stronger than it has been for more than a decade or so. Equally, I, I think that it's probably not as much as Rishi Sunak would have hoped to achieve. Certainly not in the poll sense as well. Mm. And Katie, you spoke to Rishi Sunak for the Christmas edition of The Spectator recently. What did he have to say about the mixed record that he's had on his five pledges? Yeah, in the interview, he's very you know defensive of his record, ultimately saying quite a lot of progress has been made. And on that tax point, when it comes to the autumn statement, saying that, you know, you've had the biggest you know tax cut in XX many years, and that should really be taken seriously. And then you go, well, what about the stealth taxes, which you did previously, which mean that you're not really taking much of them home? And I think you got from his answer this general frustration, which is, are we judging Rishi Sunak on where the Tory party is after 13 years? Or are we judging Rishi Sunak on where the party is from when he took over? Now, he was also Chancellor for tax rises, but he replied saying, before you say, oh, the Tories are super high tax, the two big events that have happened during his time as Chancellor, and then of course Prime Minister, is the pandemic, which led to the furlough scheme, mass state intervention and spending, and also the war in Ukraine, which was a, obviously a big aggravating factor in the energy crisis, which led to the energy bailout and huge sums of money. And therefore, if you want to have those things and you uh, want those payments, which happen for the two different things there, you have to accept that something's going to have to give later down the line. So the fact that he is now at a point where he can cut taxes should be seen in the context of those rather than, you know, where the tax burden is from a post-war high. Now, not everyone will be impressed by that, but I think it does just show you when... You're trying to see, I think, how the Prime Minister and his team see it. I think they think, for example, on legal migration, well, the numbers are down since Rishi Sunak took over. The problem is the numbers are still very high, far too high for most people in the Tory party. On Rwanda, the numbers are down on the year before, largely because of the Albania deal, but there's no one stopping the boats, which he himself said. So I think there's a keenness to play up small progress, which perhaps, by the way, if he was at the beginning of a four or five year term, would be, a, a, you know, look where we are now, look where we're going to get by the end of it. If you are ultimately a prime minister coming in for the final year or so of a premiership, there's going to be limits to what you can do. And also lots of the things that came before. So I, I think that's probably where he sits on it in that sense. Mm. And Stephen, how well do you think Rishi Sunak has played with the hand that was dealt to him in sense of, you know, you know, you look at immigration, for example, Rwanda is not one of his policies. It's a Boris Johnson era policy. And yet it seems like his government is going to survive or die by it. Should he have basically done different things with the situation that he inherited, in t- especially on immigration? Should he really have egged it up so much? Or maybe he didn't have much choice at all? So I think... The reason why Rishi Sunak is the most interesting politician to talk to about this year is that the administrative record, given what he inherited, given the context, is quite good. The political record should embarrass literally everyone connected with it, right? So, I mean, let's take small boats as, as an example, right? The deal with Albania, the deal with France, which would not have been possible without him taking a very big political risk on the Windsor framework, without him putting the personal energy to repair the Anglo-French relationship, which obviously is so important not only to boats, but to, you know, the fight against global terror, the closest main security partner to us in Europe, you know, a hugely important relationship which had been allowed to be degraded essentially for 
a couple of here today, gone tomorrow headlines. And all of that has reduced the number of small boats. You are never going to reduce all illicit movement in or out of a country to zero. No country in the world has managed that, even the ones which are blessed with much more favourable geography than the United Kingdom. So he does have a positive policy story to tell. But instead, he's chosen to shackle himself to a policy he didn't support at the time. By the way, there is literally no evidence and it will ever work, right, that people are already willing to risk a horrible death in the world's busiest shipping lane to get from France, an OECD country with much going for it, to get to the United Kingdom. Yes, another OECD country with much going for it. But the idea that someone who's willing to drown to make that journey is going to, oh, there's a teeny tiny chance that I might be one of the 40,000 people, 200 out of 40,000 people to end up in Rwanda is insane. And I think on every policy area, you can see how the policy record would give him some space to go, you know, we've had some global shocks. We had an experiment with political fantasy on my own party. I've stabilised things. The arrows are going in the right direction. Don't forget that it wasn't too long ago that Labour was having its own weird political journey, so let's not have any radical mistakes on that journey. But instead, so much of what he says politically is, my record is terrible, even when it's not terrible, vote for me. You know, it's the same on taxes, right? Like, ultimately, the Conservative government made a bunch of quite expensive pledges on public services in 2019. Broadly speaking, in terms of public spending, they have kept most of them, and... Rishi Sunak has raised taxes, both as Chancellor and as Prime Minister, to meet those pledges. He would, I think, be much better off saying, we've done that and you will start to see the benefits, you know, through waiting this coming down, through, you know, more police on the street, et cetera, et cetera, than this kind of, um, yeah, it does sometimes feel like the campaign under Rishi Sunak is going to be, you know, it's been 13 years of darkness, time for five more years of <laughs> the abyss. And you just think, well, of course no one's going to But at least I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, I, but, and so, yeah, it's kind of, it's been a... Day and night. Yeah, it's been a prolonged exercise in talking down his own record. And unsurprisingly, the polls haven't moved in terms of the Labour-Conservative battle, but one way they have moved is that at the start of the year, Rishi Sunak was much more popular than the Conservative Party, and now he's not. <laughs> and James, I want to talk about north of the border as well, because you mentioned Scotland just now, and that has it's been a dramatic year for Scottish politics too, so much so that we've had our own Coffee House Shots spin-off, Coffee House Scots, featuring our colleagues Lucy Dunn and Michael Simmons quite often. We started the year with Sturgeon's resignation in February, and the SNP then saw a number of its senior people arrested. Has the party now stabilised under Hamza Youssef? Well, I think much like the ratings of Rishi Sunak have stabilised at a lower level than they were at the beginning <laughs> of the year, the SNP have sort of stabilised. I think Paul Holmes' years have, I think he grade not in a matter of years, but in a matter of weeks when he first became first minister because he kept having to answer questions about these scandals of which he appeared to know nothing. So I think that they've managed to get it through the end of the year. But what is remarkable is how Scottish Labour have now taken over in Westminster polling, mm. which is something we didn't think was ever going to be possible when you look at sort of 2019 and, and Richard Lennon's leadership of the party. So I think there's, that makes Keir Starmer's route to number 10 much easier as well. And I think that it, it's going to be a case of the independence agenda, I think, is, is not off the is off the table for the foreseeable in the short to medium term. Independence polling itself is still popular at around sort of 48, 50% or so. But I think until you have a, an SNP party that's able to kind of deliver that and make that case, I think the union is now, as I say, stronger than it has been for a long time. But of course, that makes it easier. And in Anasal, you've got a pivotal relationship with Keir Starmer, which I think is going to be one of significance in Westminster and Holyrood for years to come. Mm. And Katie, given everything that Stephen and James have just said, would you go so far as to say, that for 2024, the writing's on the wall for the election already, that Labour is on a path to victory if it can win both England and Scotland? 
if it can win both England and Scotland, it is on a path to victory. Yeah. I think in terms of the writing on the wall, it's not just that I want to have something to say for the next year. Um, <laughs> it's also just the case that hold you to it. <laughs> right now it looks as though it's very likely that Labour on course for a majority. I do think we just have to remind ourselves, though, that lots of unpredictable things happen. It's quite hard to sit here right now and map out what that narrow path, uh, you know, which the election strategist... Isaac Levida spoken to about Tory MPs actually looks like it feels mm. like I think rather than me saying the writing is on the wall I would say the narrow path at the beginning of 2023 <laughs> has got narrower it's a tightrope um yeah there's a little bit of rubble there's you know there's some locusts there's a few things going on near that path but you know we just need to look around at elections to know nothing is impossible and you just don't know whether it's a big event not to do with you know anything in the hands of the parties that comes along and just changes things you know we've had a pandemic Mm. You know, there's lots mm. of things that could happen that suddenly mean things could look a little bit different. And then secondly, I think you look at just even as recently as 2017, you look at that election where Theresa May looked very assured, consistent poll leads, and then there was a campaign all started to change. There are, as James has said, some in government, he always said, they wanted to get the lead down to 10 points by the end of the year. There are also others who said at the beginning of the year, the polls aren't going to change this year. And some who say now the polls won't change the election campaign. On that note, you had Morgan McSweeney, Keir Starmer's most senior aide, give a presentation to the Shadow Cabinet just a week or so ago, where it's those moving graphs of six different elections, some in the UK, some from other places, and it's one party being consistently ahead, short campaign starts, the whole thing collapses and it gets much tighter. So... This isn't to say, I think, that Rishi Sunak has a genius plan and Keir Starmer doesn't. And I think the argument against the 2017 type scenario is that Labour is going to be very cautious. The manifesto is unlikely to be particularly expansive and they're trying to make it so there's not much for the Tories to attack them on. Um, Whereas Theresa May, it was almost as though they became so assured of winning. They thought they could just get away with things in that campaign and, and not have to try so much. I think it's hard to see that happening, but there's just enough evidence to say that Anyone who tells you they definitely know what's going to happen next year is probably selling you snake oil. <laughs> Stephen, are you going to give it a go? Or? <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I would essentially agree with all, all of that, right? That broadly speaking, Keir Starmer's great political achievement is that he has made the Labour Party non-frightening, which has not really been true of the Labour Party in any of the elections it has fought since it went into opposition. You know, when you'd go around the country talking to people, there was genuine fear and concern about Ed Miliband in 2015, some excitement about Jeremy Corbyn, but also fear in 2017, and still some excitement and a lot more fear about Jeremy Corbyn in 2019. (laughs) But he hasn't made the Labour Party magnetically attractive. What he's done is to go to a position where it can be an acceptable lever for people who think that the Conservative government is tired and needs a rest. I think what the scenario I'm about to describe is highly unlikely, to put it mildly, but it is perfectly plausible, right, that, you know, the economy improves a bit. Or indeed, exactly as Katie says, right, in 2017, the the dynamic was that Theresa May and the people around her used an election they thought was a surefire thing to try and win an, an intellectual argument within the Conservative Party. And that did not work out well for them. If Keir Starmer comes unstuck in a short campaign, it will be the reverse thing of, you know, they're, they're so desperate to reduce the area they can be attacked on and they just, like say nothing other than, you know, well, things would be better because, you know, we'd work, you know, like it's like the Care Bear theory of political change, you know, things would be better under Labour because we'd just work a bit harder, we care more. <laughs> um, 
and that creates vulnerabilities of its own. And yeah, you know, if people go like, well, I don't think that would change anything. Yeah, you know, people stay at home, economy gets a bit better, various things happen that mean that people like geopolitical shock means people stick with what they know. Ultimately, the election is decided on the day the election actually happens. However, you would, of course, rather be in Keir Starmer's position than Rishi Sunak's, not least because in every leadership project, there's an argument over who actually calls the play, who really has the leader's ear, who shapes the election strategy. For good or for ill, we know that the election strategy will be one shaped by Morgan McSweeney, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer, and it will be a cautious time for change, but don't worry, in a non-threatening way. Whereas... Would any of us feel confident saying we know what ground the... We could all say what we know the various grounds and various people in Downing Street want to fight that election on, but who's to say where they'll land? And I would just add on that point, I think at times this year, given the way that the Tories have tried a lot in terms of trying to turn the polls around, uh, as I say, the net zero speech, the conference speech, etc., it has felt sometimes a little bit like a, a themeless year sometimes, and even you talk to some Tory ministers and, and they're not so sure about what the narrative will really be come next year, and I think that's a real sort of contrast with 2019 when they were a very tight, slick campaign based on around a couple of key messages. So I do agree with Stephen. It looks more likely that not Labour will run a, a, a successful campaign on that those front, but uh, as Katie makes the point, uh, there's a lot yet to be found out. And not least, as I say, because three quarters of the democratic world will be going to the polls. Everyone will be learning from each other next year. And, um, you know, events, dear boy events and all that. We are getting, I think, the beginnings of what the Tory election campaign will probably look like. And that will be a focus on Labour's green spending, something which the Tories already keep pushing. Mm. And I think, as Rishi Sunak kind of put it in the interview in The Spectator, trying to make it a choice, almost quite a traditional choice, traditional attack lines. The choice being the Tories who will bring down your tax and various T's and C's and whether you believe them given what's happened in 13 years or Labour who plan to borrow 28 billion a year and will raise your taxes and that's how they'll try and frame it I think that's what members of the shadow cabinet are bracing for and then you throw into that the unknown which is where we'll be with Rwanda which will define I think that part of the electoral message can they point to planes in the air or do they end up being pushed into a corner where you might get a pledge on the ECHR and of course then I think you have the attacks on character and I think Labour do plan to do lots more attack ads. They think that, you know, they did those earlier this year. Some in the Labour Party were, you know, doing howls of outrage during that period. But generally speaking, I think they think that they were quite effective and the Labour Party does have to fight a bit dirty. And then you have the Tories coming out, which is why Labour thinks they have to do it, and trying to attack Keir Starmer when it comes to his record as DPP, but also just this idea of shiftiness because there are so many... It's not even just digging through things. There's just going to be video footage of Keir Starmer saying he is Jeremy Corbyn's friend, saying he backs freedom of movement, saying he wants a second referendum. And then there's going to be video footage of Keir Starmer saying the net migration numbers are too high. Jeremy Corbyn is not his friend (laughs) and so forth. And I think putting that together and it might not have the effect that they want, but I think a lot of personal attacks too. And finally, guys, just to wrap up this podcast, now the three of you all live and breathe politics, I think it's fair to say. You work tirelessly to cover all the myriad of events that we've talked about this year. At the end of the year, can I ask you what your most memorable political moment was and where you were when it happened? I mean, I think the return on David Cameron was striking. I was in the Sky Studio, but... 
I think just for that moment of something that no one saw coming, because there's not that many well-kept secrets in Westminster. You normally get a hint of most things or a leak. And the fact there wasn't even one journalist 10 minutes before saying, we hear David mm. Cameron's coming back and you just have him getting out the car and that's when everyone saw it and all the broadcasters and all the live commentary and all something like Right, yeah, yep, there is him. And then taking the it from there, I was just about to come on. So, but you know, then you're thrown in two minutes later to that situation. <laughs> and I think that was probably a striking one just for finally a story that no one in Westminster saw coming. Yeah, I mean, I think that's obviously the like the dramatic moment of well, that's, like I took the easy one. Yeah. But that's, no <laughs> no one else spoke. But, yeah. You all paused. But I think. The most consequential one is surely the police tent outside Nicola Sturgeon's house. Now, I think it is fair to say, just as with Cash for Honours and indeed with some of the party gate questionnaires, that police in the United Kingdom, when they're investigating a political story they perhaps should have been slightly quicker on, then start to do a, like, oh, a bunch of theatre. You know, <laughs> you know, no, no, so, no, you know, so, like, you know, with, with Partygate, for example, so we've issued 4,000, <laughs> you know, questionnaires. So no one can ask us questions about whether or not some of the, you know, literal police escorts ought to have noticed some of this law-breaking when it was happening at the time. And ditto, I think there's an element of, yeah, there's been lots of criticisms about the decision to amalgamate all of Scotland's police forces into Police Scotland. I think, you know, the tent as if they were, you know, there digging for bodies in the garden was a little bit... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) was definitely a similar bit of kind of like, hey, you know, we just want all of the questions to be on the politicians, not on us. But clearly that moment has shifted the mood music around the SNP, the mood music around Nicola Sturgeon, and it's done the thing that... You know, the thing which has preoccupied everyone who wants to save the union is, broadly speaking, until 2011, there was a group of people who you said, oh, how do you feel about the union between England and Scotland? And they're like, oh, I, I want it to go. Cool. What are your politics? Oh, I'm on the centre-left. How are you going to vote? Oh, Scottish Labour. Then the referendum happened and those same group of people switched. You know, it's not that they changed their mind, it's just that they went from voting on their economic position for a centre-left party that was pro-union to voting for a centre-left party that was pro-independence. And the question's always been, oh, is there some event of sort of equal pith and moment that can shift voters back? And, OK, we've only seen one by-election right at the foothills of Scottish Labour's target seat. But it appears, at least, that the crisis in the SNP has caused a large chunk of yeah, kind of, we often talk when we talk about the independence referendum, I think in a way where we talk solely about the third who really want to leave the union and the third who really want to stay in it. But if it has shifted that third who's like, uh, meh, away from voting for the SNP and back to Scottish Labour, that is consequential, not just for the next election, but, you know, for the future of this country as it currently exists. Uh, Stephen talks about mood music. I'd contrast the reaction to the two speeches. And uh, Labour, for the first time, had their conference after the Tories in about 20 years or so. And I think that was exemplified the fact that the Tories, it was dominated by this row over HS2 and Andy Street standing there. And it was a real themeless, sort of shapeless conference speech. Whereas the buzz around Keir Starmer's speech, the fact that people queuing up for hours beforehand and the reaction that came to, even when there's a moment of brief adversity with the glitter bombing, and for God's sake, you know, Rachel, et cetera. <laughs> the, the contrast in, and who was smiling that evening and that afternoon, I would say would be my kind of that fortnight defining moment as a sign of where perhaps the political winds are changing. Great. James, Katie and Stephen, thanks very much. And thank you to loyal listeners for tuning in to us this year. We hope you have a very happy Christmas. Mm-hmm.